Psalm 41, Rod asked if they could insert that into the service, and I said, sounds good to me. And it also sounded good because it really fits the theme of the end of the first book of the Psalms. We come to the end today, 41 chapters deep into the Psalms, and we come to a passage that brings to a close this section while focusing on the weak, the blessing of God on the weak. The title of the sermon this morning is God's Blessing on the Weak. Let's read it together. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. That word in the Hebrew is better translated. You see it if you have an ESV, it's noted. But it's better translated weak. Blessed is the one who considers the weak. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friends in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. God blesses the poor. He blesses the weak. The, the reason I say it's better to translate that first passage with the word weak is because when we hear the word poor, we think immediately about financial depravity. We think about not having enough in terms of money. But that's not what's really reflected here. David puts himself in the place of this weak person. If you look at verse 4, you notice he said, Blessed is the one who considers the weak. In the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. Verse 4 says, As for me, I said, I prayed, O Lord, be gracious to me. He's putting himself in the place of this poor, this weak person. And we know that David, being a king, is not financially poor. That's not his condition. So it's better to understand it as weakness. Weakness of any kind, but in this psalm, particularly a weakness because of a physical infirmity. He's suffering on his sickbed, as he calls it later in the passage. So we look at this passage, and first of all, we see that God blesses the weak. Have I said that enough that you get the picture that this is what the psalm is about? God blesses the weak. 
He expands, here is very clearly stated, but he expands this idea in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes this same theme up in his teaching, the longest recorded sermon of the Lord that we have. And here it is, again, this idea that God blesses the poor, that he loves the poor in spirit, that he blesses the weak and they shall inherit the earth because they are meek and gentle and lowly. James, the brother of the Lord, picks this up in chapter 4 when he says, Humble yourself and draw near to God, and then God will draw near to you. This humility, this weakness, this brokenness, this poverty that's being spoken of over and over again in the, in the various places of the Bible is clearly displayed for us here. What we're, de- what we're dealing with is the fact that God speaks grace over the weak. He doesn't give grace to the proud. He doesn't give grace to the arrogant. He doesn't give grace to the strong and independent. He gives it to the needy, to the poor, to the meek, to the weak, to the one in most connection with his fallen nature and the fact that he has no resources from which to draw to save himself. That's who the Lord blesses. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now, he noticed in that first verse, God blessing the weak. How does God bless them? We might ask. How does he bless them? Look at verse 1. He says that the man that considers the weak or the poor is blessed by God. So what we see here in the first chapter of Psalm, we saw the blessed man. And at the last chapter in this first book we see the blessed man and the activity of the blessed man consists of caring for those in the most need and God looks on that in two ways number one it's God's hand for helping the weak how does God help the weak in our world how does God reach out to the most impoverished the most needy the most desperate how does he do it Through the hands and feet of his children. That's how he does it. That's one way. Secondly, we see in this first verse that he not only blesses the weak through the hands of his people, but he blesses the one who blesses the weak. There's a promise here, isn't there? That we need to take note of. The man, there's a statement of fact. It's a promise. When you care for the poor, the needy, the weak, God gives grace to you. He blesses you. Now this weak person is cared for directly by the Lord. We see this in the next uh, two and a half verses. David lays out for us a very clear outline of what God does for the poor or the weak. First of all, we might in the outline call it point A. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. This is a very general promise. In the day of trouble, God delivers the weak. It's a very broad statement. Secondly, we see in two, chapter, uh, verse 2, first part of verse 2, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. Now we're becoming more specific. So this man, this weak man is in trouble and the Lord delivers him. This weak man is near to death and God keeps him alive. Third, second part of verse 2, he's called blessed in the land. You notice the hope of Israel has always been tied, and the hope of God's people has always been tied to the kingdom. 
And part of that kingdom reality is a place. In the Garden of Eden, God began this unveiling of the kingdom of God to the people, to us. How did He do it? He, he created Adam and He placed him in a garden. In a true sense of the word, that is a revelation of the kingdom of God. How do we see it as the kingdom of God? God is there with His people in a specific place, the Garden of Eden. So the truest first revelation of the kingdom of God is God with Adam in the garden. This reality of God's blessing of the kingdom to His people or giving the kingdom to His people, which includes giving Himself to His people, continues throughout the Scriptures. It's further revealed to us in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and, and Genesis chapter 17. What do we see there? The promise to Abraham that his descendants will have a land. God with his people in a place. That's what's being promised. And that's what David's drawing on here. God will help the needy, the weak, in the day of trouble. He will keep him alive, number two. And number three, he will be called blessed. This weak, humble man will be called blessed in the land. Because he is dependent on God, who is his deliverer and the one who keeps him alive, he in his land is called blessed. In the kingdom of God, Jesus says, the poor will inherit the earth. He wasn't just drawing that idea out of the thin clouds. That wasn't a new promise that Jesus was making in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a reiteration of the promise we're reading right here. When you're in trouble, know that God will deliver you. He will keep you alive and He will make you to be blessed in the land. So we see that in this first three promises here of how God helps the weak. Fourthly, how does God help the weak? You do not give Him up to the will of His enemies. The very fact of the matter is God's people have always been harassed by enemies. God's people have always been under attack. God's people have always in this life since the fall of man been confronted with people who would destroy them. And what the promise here is, is deeper than physical. It is physical, but it's deeper than that in the reality that we are always saved from our enemies in the work of God to bless us through Jesus Christ. So, your enemy may seemingly win the day in the moment. Godly people will die in this life. But ultimately, they are spared from that victory of their enemy. And their enemy loses because Christ is their blessing. He's their deliverer. He doesn't give them up to the will of their enemy. The will of your enemy is to send your soul to hell. Ultimately, Christian. Ultimately, your enemy would love to take your happiness. He would love to take your marriage. He would love to take your financial wealth. He would love to take your health. He would love to take... Your home, he would love to take your children. Your enemy, which prowls around to seek and devour whoever's faith he can have, wants you. Trust me. Trust the Word of God. But he ultimately, his ultimate will for you would be to take you to the pits of hell for eternity. And David says, his will will not find success. The Lord will protect you in the day of your enemy's attack so that he's not able to carry out his will against you. 
Fifthly, we see here that God blesses the poor by sustaining him in his physical sickness. Here we have not just the mental, although there is mental distress, not just the spiritual distress, but the physical distress of this this weak man. He's laid on his sickbed, very similar to the passage in James chapter 5. And there's lots of debate about that passage in James 5, but the simple way to sum it up is the word used in that James passage, though it often denotes spiritual weakness, in the Gospels that same word is used over and over and over again. To describe physical healing from physical sickness. And in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the same word that James uses is the word used in our passage to denote the fact that God delivers people from their sick beds. So, do I believe that when you're sick and you call the elders to pray over you, that God heals you spiritually? If, if you're in sin, absolutely. Do I believe that God heals you mentally and emotionally? Absolutely. But I believe He also, because of His own design, chooses at times to heal His people from their sickbeds. He brings them back up off the doorstep of death. And so we find here these promises to the people of God. The final promise of what God will do for the weak is found in the last part of verse 3. In His illness... This is a more general word to speak mainly, uh, usually, or often it speaks of spiritual distress in the Old Testament. In his illness you restore him to full health. You turn all of his sickbed into a place of rejoicing. He goes from seeming death to full life again. So God does care for the weak. He does that through the people who consider them and love them and pray for them. And He specifically helps them in very general and specific ways. What, what, how, what should our response be to the needy? What should our response be to those who are the most weak in our society? I would say the word... Consider holds a lot of weight for you and for me. Grace Fellowship is made up mainly of people, whether we like to think of ourselves this way or not, of of people who are, are blessed. Financially, relationally, position, influence, health. We come from the most advantaged positions in our society. Most of us do. And that little word in the first verse is so instructive to me. What would God have me do for the weak and the poor? He would have me consider them. How easy is it to be calloused in our hearts? To drive past the needy? To drive through the bad part of town? To not even notice the human wreckage all around us? To just ignore it. To not consider it. I'll tell you this. You can't help those in need until you first considered their need. Until you first considered them as humans. Fellow bearers of the image of God. 
until you've considered how you might could be the one to help them. You can't help people unless you at least notice them. It's often to our shame, isn't it, that we get so busy and wrapped up in our daily life. I do it. That we don't really notice it. And often God will send our children as a reminder, right? Especially this time of year. Especially this time of year. There's lots of people in need. and There's lots of organizations raising money for people in need. There's nothing like walking into a store and walking past the bell ringer and them saying, could you help today? And you say, no, I don't have any money. And then walking up to the cash register and open your wallet, there's money in there. And your little one says, I thought we didn't have any money. There's nothing like sitting in a warm home, full, all our needs taken care of, excess displayed in gifts unwrapped, and passing on the opportunity to help those on even that day who are the most needy. Our biggest problem, Christian, let's just be honest, is we don't often consider people. We don't even think about it. We're not acquainted with their sorrow. We're not in touch with their grief. Aren't you glad your Savior was in touch with your grief? Aren't you glad your Savior was acquainted with your sorrow? Blessed is the one who considers the weak. Because God desires to bless them in very general ways by helping them in the day of trouble and keeping them alive and protecting them by making them blessed in the land by giving them not to the will of their enemy, but keeping them for his own will. The Lord sustains them while they die and delivers them even often from that illness so that they don't die. That's the first section of this psalm. The second section, verses 4 through 10, is contained really in an attitude of prayer. The second section here, beginning in verse 4, is a prayer to God for mercy. As for me, I said, David speaking about himself, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Heal, not just my physical, in that word heal me, we see in the Hebrew, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Here's the cry, the same cry that comes in other Psalms, in the first section, right? Where David admits that it's because of his sin that he finds himself in this situation of suffering. David admits, it's my soul sickness that has placed me in this place. I know it's my fault. I'm not blaming it on anyone else. I take responsibility. Oh, David, it's so terrible that you're sick. We all hate it so much. Is there any way, sire, we might serve you in your sickness? David says, Lord, they have empty words. And when they leave, they run about spreading my demise. They come in to spread their empty words almost to find out how sick is he, you know. Like, let's go take him a pie, a bunt cake or something so we can find out how bad it really is. So then we can go gossip and backbite about him. 
His heart is gathering iniquity. I like the way he describes it. He's very pictorial, isn't he? He's full of empty words. He's talking, but he has no meaning. And the whole time he's there, he's like a spy infiltrated behind the camp lines so he can find out the nitty-gritty and the dirt of the situation so that then he can go out and tell it abroad. When he's praying, he's very honest with God to say, God, have grace and mercy on me because my enemies hope for my death and they spend their time backbiting like a bunch of hypocrites, heaping up endless empty words, all the while hoping I will die and telling others that I'm about to die. He goes further though in his prayer. He says, they wrongly attribute this illness to the judgment of God. Verse 7. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Verse 8, they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. It has fastened itself to him. He will not rise again from where he lies. They see it as a judgment of God. They see it as something that depicts his sin... In that they're right. And God's action against his sin. In that they're wrong. They miss it. They think. "Mm -hmm, David this goody two shoes. Runs around acting like he's a child of God. And all the while he's got hidden sin. And God's paying him for it. He's going to die. He's getting what's got coming to him. They've wrongly judged his illness. They've attributed it to the judgment of God. Now. We know from past studies. That God does often bring tribulation and suffering on His people because of sin in their life. But it's not judgment, is it? It's not condemnation, but it's good, godly discipline. A father that loves his children applies the rod when it's necessary. So, they have a half-truth, his enemies do. They're not very different, really, from the friends of Job, right? In Job chapter 3. Job's faithful trio shows up. He's laying on the trash heap. And they come and just sit. They don't say anything. I always think Job's a good pastoral study of what not to do. Guy's sick. You just walk in the hospital room, sit down, and just sit and stare at him. You don't say anything for a long time. That's not really a very comforting position to be in if you're the sick person, right? And then you think, that's pretty bad. But it gets worse. Job's friends opened their mouth. They should have stayed silent. I'd have been better. I'm sure Job, while they were silent, was thinking, I wish these guys would say something. Then they started talking. He's like, I wish they'd have just been quiet. His very friends, Job's so-called friends, show up to tell him, you're suffering. And have you considered that it's probably because you're a sinner? And God's judging you. God's condemning you, Job. God never lays these heavy burdens on the righteous, is their assessment. You know, as we think about this, and as we transition through this psalm, it's easy, I think, for us to think, yeah, that's what enemies do, but verse 9 is the place where it really gets tough, doesn't it? Because not only do his enemies hope he dies, act like backbiting hypocrites wrongly attribute his illness to judgment but in verse 9 his best friends his closest friend even my close friend in whom I trusted 
who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, I don't know where specifically this comes from. If you remember in Psalm 38, I said that we're not certain of any event in David's life where he's just deathly ill. A lot of people question whether David actually wrote Psalm 38 or Psalm 41 for that reason. They say, we don't know of any recorded illness in David's life that matches these things. But I said in that sermon, I hold it today, sickness would have been so common in their day, it wouldn't have been noteworthy. I mean, people, people got sick and died all of the time. In our society, it's noteworthy when people get sick, especially gravely ill. But in David's day, it wouldn't have been noteworthy, really. So I think that at least Psalm 41 is best understood in the context of what goes on in David's life in 2 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 15 through 17, verse 23. What happens there? Well, Absalom begins his rebellion. And David's closest friend, who had been his friend for years, Ahithophel, becomes his betrayer. The way he describes in verse 9 just looks a lot like that, doesn't it? The man who has eaten bread from my own table now has lifted his heel against me. This messianic idea in David's life is always uh, good to note. Here, David is being treated the way the Lord was treated. In John 13, we see Jesus in John 13, verse 18, quote this very passage in talking about Judas. See, David only was a shadow of what the reality that was coming. David suffered through the indignity of a friend that betrayed him. But let's face it, David was a sinner. I mean, David wasn't fully righteous. It's bad that his friend betrayed him. I'm not saying that he deserved a friend's betrayal, but he couldn't plead to be perfect. But Jesus in the upper room in John 13, 18, the only perfect one, looks at Judas and says that a friend who eats bread with me this very night will betray me. Friend who will eat from my table bread will lift his heel against me. So here in this psalm, it moves really from the enemy, which we might understand all these actions from an enemy, but then to my friends. But this section of the psalm closes with that return to the idea of grace. Same as verse 4. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Lord, my prayer is that you have grace towards me. Verse, verse 4. Verse 10. Why have grace towards me and raise me up? that I may repay them for this wrong. Now, here we see the righteous indignation that David has towards his enemies and his betraying friends. But we have the same idea again. Lord, be gracious to me. In the final section, David again turns to summarize in a sense. So we, we know we should... If we're, if we're weak, God will bless us. He blesses us through His people. If we're God's people, we're to consider the weak. When you're the weak one, it's good to pray to God and cry out for His grace. Even in these most desperate situations where you face death and you face enemies that want you to die and gossip and backbite about you and wrongly attribute God's judgment to you when you're not being judged by God, and even the betrayal of a close friend, we still can depend on God for His grace in those times. 
But notice at the end, he gives us good instruction again. You find yourself as the weak one, the one who's suffering. Trust in the strength of God. Verse 11, by this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from, whom, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So he closes with this idea of trusting in God's strength. By this I know that you delight in me. How? Because you haven't given the final victory to my enemy. You've delivered me from his schemes and you've upheld me in my integrity and you've given me a place in your presence forever. As we think about applying this into our own lives, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it, if you've been with us through the Psalms, that that's really what we want to do. We want to apply it in our lives. If we think about that, we already have this Psalm fulfilled for us, don't we? We think about it. I've already talked about it a little, but I, I want to pull your mind away from the temporal for a moment. Temporally, momentarily, in this day, your enemies may think they win a great victory. The world may be excited at your demise. But eternally, and though for those of us who are Christians, it's important we keep an eternal mindset. Eternally, we can trust in God's strength for deliverance. He may deliver us momentarily. He may take us out of our struggles of this life. But we know He's ultimately delivered us from our enemy. Hold your place here and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we close, I want to just focus in on this ultimate deliverance that we've all received. Your greatest enemy in this life, your greatest enemy, the one who seeks to do you the most harm, is Satan. He seeks to do you harm because he hates you. He hates everything about you. The fact that you are a child of God makes him bull with passion to destroy you. Often he does bring us these fiery darts in the spiritual war. And so I'm bringing your mind to this. One of the fiery darts... I think David faced it in our psalm is the reason I reference here. One of the fiery darts that Satan often brings is a loss of confidence in God as our Savior. And now, some of us are young enough that we haven't faced this quite as much as those who have been a few years down the road, not pointing any fingers, right? But for those who have suffered, it's, and, and those of us who've watched people that we love that are in Christ suffer, I find it to be the cruelest thing that in the day of their physical suffering, the biggest struggle they have is not physical. That's bad. It's mental and spiritual. In the day of their deepest struggle, what they really need is to be reminded that they have a place in the presence of God forever. That their enemy will not have final victory over them. And that in this is a blessing forevermore 
everlasting to everlasting. Paul understood this too, I think. Most clearly, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But, but, but God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. There is a variety in God's giving to each of us a body, and that glory is varied so that there's a vast array of God's power and strength on display. Heavenly bodies, and human bodies, and animal bodies, and fish bodies, and bird bodies. All types of bodies, they're not all the same. The variety is for the glory of God. 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So that person laying on their deathbed. What is their biggest struggle? What is their ultimate struggle? To trust in the strength of God. To trust in God's promise. To hold on to faith in the moment of death. And to die believing that God will raise them from the dead. If you deny God on your deathbed, if you walk away from the faith in your dying days, it indicates the lack of faith. Hebrews 11, all these died, what? In faith. Yes, perseverance of the saint is necessary. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God if you walk away on the last day. Perseverance is necessary. And that's why I'm stressing it to you. Because if it's your ultimate struggle on the day of your death, it's your ultimate struggle today. We often fall into this foolish belief that when we live our lives free, no thoughts of death, no thoughts of what is to come, and we just live for life, live and let live, that somehow when we get to the last day, God will magically impart to us faith to trust in His promises. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. Your life right now needs to be consumed with the ultimate enemy. And your ultimate enemy is the one who seeks to take not just your body, but your soul to hell. That's your ultimate enemy. You need to be consumed with it today, not on your deathbed. Because if you're not consumed today with the thought that if I don't live in trust of God to save me today, if you don't live that way today, you may be on your deathbed by the end of this day. And you will not be prepared. This life is a preparing ground for that day. 
All of this life can be summed up with that ultimate question. Are you in Him and trusting in Him and relying in Him and reclining in Him or not? And if you're not today reclined in Him and trusting in Him, when you lay on your deathbed, you won't be there either. It's a fanciful faith that you possess. It's a false faith. Perseverance is real. It matters not how many begin the race. It matters who's straining toward the finish line at the end. Paul is consumed with this. And I think his best defense and his best challenge to us, just like Psalm 41, is in the context of laying on a deathbed. God, you're the only one. Have mercy on me. Have grace on me. Deliver me. But ultimately, God, I trust that you have delivered me. You will save me. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust, and as, it is, it, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this Perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There it is, the idea that we are, we are saved from our greatest enemy. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Psalm 41, like 1 Corinthians 15, gives us the anecdote to our weakness, and that anecdote is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way to be delivered from your poor estate is through Him. And in that deliverance, He has victory over your greatest, most ultimate enemy. And if He has defeated that enemy, then He defeats all other enemies. Often we try to work forward, and God is working this backwards. We're trying to say, well, if God can defeat this enemy in this, this struggle with lust, if He can defeat that in this moment, then I can trust Him to defeat this greatest enemy. But God does just the opposite. God says, I've defeated your greatest enemy. I've crushed the head of Satan. I've delivered you from the sting of death. I've given you eternal life. Your body will be raised imperishable. Now, what did you want to tell me about lust? And about how you can't defeat it. 
If I defeated this, certainly I defeat this. You see that? Why have I stressed and why did I take Psalm 41 to that end? Because that's the ultimate end. We have victory in Jesus Christ over our ultimate enemy. We are delivered from sin and death and Satan and the power of this world. And it all hinges on the belief that in that we are resurrected. So, let the deathbed come. And when it comes, we will lay, like all the saints have before us, in the power of the grace of God in that moment, declaring the strength of God to conquer our enemies. And we'll be released from this body of death and corruptibility. And we will await an incorruptible, perfect. That's our hope, people. That's it. If you got your hope anywhere else this morning, it's false hope. If you think anything else is going to deliver you from the power of sin and death, there's nothing else. And if you're going to wait until the last moment to trust in Him, don't be surprised when you've waited too late. So I'm calling you to Him today. Don't wait. Today is the day of salvation. Trust Him today. Trust Him today to deliver you from your weakness. Let's pray. Father, we have...